0: We're in John 12, verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The word of the Lord. God. God, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our hearts to receive your word. God, help us to not be mere hearers of your word, but to be doers. God, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen So if I were to ask you To define life And I'm not talking about defining life in the sense of Just give me the definition I know a lot of you are very educated We've got some doctors, soon to be doctors uh, In the room And that's not what I'm talking about What I'm talking about is You and I go sit down and get coffee, and I say, tell me about yourself, tell me about your life. How would you define that? I want you to legitimately think about that right now, because if you're like me, okay, so let's imagine this for a second, um, which my, my wife and, and beautiful children are not able to be here this morning. Our two-year-old son uh, is dealing with his first little stomach bug. Uh, so, yep, got uh, two, I guess it was yesterday morning, early in the morning, about one in the morning, uh, got woken up to vomit in the bed. Yep, I went and grabbed him, trying not to turn the lights on, and I'm thinking, what is that smell? And it 's all over both of us. So we clean everything up, we put the second change of sheets on, lay him back down, finally, not 10 minutes later, again. Oh. anyways, he 's doing much better, though. It was honestly, he woke up the next like yesterday morning at about 8:30, hour and a half after he typically gets up, in a great mood. so he's doing great, but I didn't want to subject your children to that, you're welcome. Uh, Anyways, but that is where a lot of my definition, if we sat down, you said, tell me about yourself, tell me about your life. I'm going to start telling you about my wife, my children, probably get into talking about vocationally what I do, what do I do for a job. It's really boring. I won't even tell you about that right now. Um, I'm an insurance agent. Uh, But... (laughs) I would tell you about that. I may get into some hobbies and interests, may tell you that, oh, I I take some classes at, you know, Western Seminary. I may tell you that, man, I'm, you know, I used to have a lot of hobbies and and now I have a two-year-old and a four-month-old and what are hobbies, right? Uh, So again, think of that for yourself. Now, with that image in mind, I want us to imagine two scenarios. And we're getting somewhere with this. I promise we're going to get back to the text, but hopefully this helps all of us, right? So so here's the, here's the two scenarios I want you to imagine. The first is, and this is going to be really difficult for us to imagine, uh, I, I would think, as Americans. Um, I want you to imagine that we're in an election season. <laughs> Okay, political election season, and there's politicians vying for your vote. Tough to imagine, right? No one can really put themselves in this situation. I get it. All right, and let's say that you get interested in this political candidate. And you start thinking, I think I'm going to cast my vote for this guy. And don't worry, if you're getting nervous right now, we're not going into politics, all right? This is just an example, an illustration. Um, so, hey, I think I'm interested in this guy. And you, you go to a rally or some fundraising event, and, you know, you get a chance afterwards. You go, and you're, you're talking to this guy, and he's painting this. Hey, as he looks out at the future, what he sees, and he looks you right in your eyes, and he says, Now, I'm, I'm going to need you to follow me. I'm going to need you to lay aside your life. I'm going to need you to value me and what I say and the things that I want to happen above everything else. I don't know about you, but I'm going to go find a new candidate. (laughs) I'm going to think who is this megalomaniac? If he looks at me and he says, hey, your, your wife, your kids, they're all second to me. No, they're not. <laughs> I'm going to go find someone else to vote for, right? Because when we come to politics, we're looking for someone who supports our version of the good life. But now I want you to imagine a second scenario. Let's say that, which Justin, I know this this week is in the mountains, and he's a big mountain guy, uh, that's actually, we met doing some trips with XMA, but let's say that Justin plans a trip for all of us in this room. We're all going to Mount Everest, and we are going to scale Mount Everest. I know, probably tougher to imagine this scenario, but go with me, Okay. And we're on this, this expedition. We've got a, an expert mountain guide who this is what he does, is he gets people to the peak of Mount Everest. And he turns to us, he looks at some point, he looks ahead, and he sees there's a storm coming. And he turns to us and he says, there's a storm coming. And it's going to be really bad. And I know you brought a lot of gear with you. I know this isn't going to be easy. But I'm going to need you to leave some of this gear because we're going to have to move fast. I'm going to need you to put aside your opinions of what we should do because I've seen this before. I've done this before. There's my beautiful wife and four-month-old right there. Uh, Sorry, Sorry, that is a surprise to me that they're here. I did not mean to call them out, but back to the illustration. Uh, So he looks at us and he says, we're going to have to travel fast. This isn't going to be easy. Some of you may even die, but I need you to follow me. I need you to put aside everything that you've you've brought, Uh, the sleeping bag, the tent that brought you comfort last night. We're going to leave that because we're moving fast. I need you to follow me. (laughs) I don't know about you, but all of a sudden, a little bit different take on this because he's not serving his own interest. He's looking out For us, he's trying to lead us towards life, right? And and so, as we come to the text this morning, I, I want to set that stage because I think oftentimes we can come to Jesus more like a politician than an expert mountain guide, more like the politician that we're looking to support our version of the good life. And less like the mountain guide who's looking ahead with our our best interest in mind and saying, I know this terrain, I made this terrain, I need you to follow me. So with, with that in mind, we're going to go back to the text, but I want to set this up just a little bit. Y'all have been in the Gospel of John. Uh, I listen most, most weeks to the podcast whenever it releases, uh, so I, I keep up with you guys. Um, and so, so John's Gospel, the first couple, first 12 chapters, we're right at this hinge point. Okay, so the first 12 chapters, there's this building um, conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, right? We've seen this. There's these signs that are pointing to the identity of Jesus. John is kind of constantly bringing this back up to us of who do you see Jesus to be? And again, we're going to get back to that politician mountain guide uh, illustration in a minute. But in, in leading up to this moment, these conflicts with Jesus and the Jewish leadership have escalated to this point where the Jewish leaders are not only trying to kill Jesus, but they actually start wanting to kill Lazarus. Because Jesus' miracles and signs that have pointed to his identity have also culminated to this point where he raises a man from the dead. And so right before our text today in John chapter 12, verse 19, it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So we have these Jewish leaders who are rejecting Jesus... The Pharisees, and we have this moment where all of a sudden, so there are these Greeks, With the the next line, verse 20, the next line, the next verse, verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship, this is the first, again, verse of our text today, at the feast were some Greeks. So this some Greeks here can be used as the world. Because to this point, we haven't really talked about the Greeks in John's gospel, but this would have been the people who were not Jewish. So the the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, are saying the whole world's coming after him. And then all of a sudden, John, right after that, says, and here were the Greeks, among those who were headed to worship, right? You're like, okay, I see what you're doing here, John. I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. And... We're not told a whole lot about these Greeks. There's a lot of stuff you can read out there. I did this week in, in preparation. I was reading all these commentaries. because I'm like, what is the big role that these guys play? And I, I don't pretend to know. Uh, okay, so I'm not going to give you all of the answers. But one interesting thing that I, I did read is, so William Barclay says of the Greeks, they were characteristically seekers after truth. It was no unusual thing to find a Greek who had passed through philosophy after philosophy and religion after religion and gone from teacher to teacher in the search for truth. The Greeks were people with inquiring minds. See, because the the term here for Greeks is not, doesn't make us think that these were proselytes. These are not, these were not converted um, Jews, but but these are people who might just be interested in kind of just this pantheon of religions. They're interested in this Jewish God. They're going to worship at this feast, but they don't come to Jesus saying, we wish to see Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. So we don't have any sense that God has revealed himself to them. Just we we, we want to see Jesus. For some reason, they don't approach Jesus. They approach the disciples again. I'm not going to be the one to tell you why all of that is. We're going to get into our text. But, but as these guys approach, something here, so something changes for Jesus. Jesus, so disciples come to him. Hey, these guys want to see you. Jesus responds, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If you've been tracking through the Gospel of John to this point, there's been a few themes. The hour is one of them. But to this point, every time Jesus has referenced this hour, it's been the hour is not yet. My hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come, right? There's this anticipation that's building. If you just start in John 1 1 and you just start reading, you're going to be thinking, okay, what is this hour that is not yet come? And then all of a sudden we get to this moment, the hour has come. Something's changing, right? This is a hinge point in the Gospel of John. And and right after this text that we're going to go through today, Jesus goes back into this more, and so I'm going to leave that for Weston to fully dive into next week. But um, the thing that we need to realize is that this is a culmination moment. Again, these themes that we've seen prior have led us to this point. The hour, we've seen these Signs that point to Jesus' identity that culminate to this moment. Life is a key theme in the Gospel of John. I found this super interesting as I was researching this week that the word life is used 47 times in the Gospel of John. 39 of those are either in our block of text today or before. Okay, so 47 times the word life is used in the Gospel of John. In the synoptics, all of the synoptics combined, 39 times. John is not being subtle about his use of saying, hey, we're talking about life here. And at the end of John, John even tells us why he's he's writing. And he said, it's so that you may see Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and in him you may have eternal life. John is not being subtle here. So, this theme of life is even culminating in this moment because Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's using this parable to foretell his own death. That in his death, there is fruit. Death is essential. For further life. And again, I'm, I'm not going to get into all this this week, but, but I, I think it's interesting that these Greeks, these seekers, they come to, to, to Jesus. Jesus says the hour has come. Something about this moment triggers for Jesus. OK, the hour has come. And we're, we, we get this throughout the Gospel of John that Jesus has this like awareness of of time and awareness of what God is, is doing again. The hour has not yet come. Okay. Now in this moment, something changes and immediately Jesus sees what this means for him. Death. But, but also I think that he brings out what this means for his followers And what he says and what we're going to read right here in verses 25 and 26, I feel like highlights the choice and the consequence of our reaction to Jesus. Again, remember the Pharisees who I would argue are approaching Jesus more like a politician, that they are hoping they have a vision of the Messiah that supports their version of the good life. They're expecting the Messiah to show up and be on their team. And then we have the Greeks who are seeking, and I just think it's interesting that from the beginning of people seeking Jesus, he's like, let's just get it out there what this is going to mean for you. And what does he say? Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Whoever hates his life, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Again, Image in your mind of as you describe your life. Anyone else like, I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) I I don't know what to do with Jesus telling me to to hate my life in this world. Uh, I I love my life in this world as described earlier by let me tell you about my life. I think there's a really important thing for us to see right here, and I'm not trying to, let me, before I even say this, I'm not trying to downplay the words of Jesus in in what I'm going to say. I just want to add some context that I think is helpful, okay, Um, because again, Jesus did use a lot of shocking uh, language and imagery throughout the Gospels. Jesus was not, Jesus was trying to get this response from people of like, what do you mean hate my life in this world? So this is not to downplay that, but this is just to help us, OK? So there, So love, love hate, and, and we, we would know this, because even the way that we use love and hate is not always like this literal thing, right? We t- I, I talk about that I love pizza, I love my dog, I love you know, Texas football. I know, it's been a rough decade. Um, But I love my wife. If all of those things are just perfectly equal, be concerned for my marriage, okay? (laughs) Right, like, they're not. The other side is our language is pretty limited. The Greeks had seven words for what would encapsulate what we say for love. So, there there is this sense of love and hate that is is this Jewish idiom that is used for devotion and allegiance. So, So, saying love this, hate this. And an easy place to see this is in Luke 16, 13, when Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one... And love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other, right? Like hate and love, devoted despise. Does that help anyone to kind of see that of like whenever Jesus is talking about this kind of an ordering and allegiance? Because again, how does he tell us to hate our, which we're gonna get to in a moment? To hate father and mother, but yet also one of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother. Like there's more going on here than just this kind of blanket statement. So I hope that that is helpful. And again, not trying to downplay what's being said here. But again, we, we defined life earlier, but are the things that we defined as life really what Jesus would define as life? That's kind of the big question here. And to answer that, I I want to go to another text because Jesus telling us to, you know, hate our life or to take up your cross or whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, this idea is not unique to this moment in John's gospel, to this one saying of Jesus. But. We can look elsewhere and we see that, okay, Jesus talked about this a good bit. And one of those places is in Luke 14. So in Luke 14, verses 25 through 27, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, this is him being Jesus, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Man, that's hard to hear, right? I'm, I'm a dad. Like that's my world at this moment in life revolves like in large part around again two-year-old four-month-old trying to have like trying to be a good husband have a healthy marriage like so much of my life revolves right around my family and I hear these words of Jesus I think Jesus what what do you mean I think there's something that we need to realize is that when Jesus tells us to hate our life in this world, that even some of the things that he can talk about can be good things that we elevate to the place of God things. And I think that these words in Luke really help us to see two really important, I would say, idols for humanity. And again, uh, these are good things, but when they take the place of God, when they get elevated to the place where they become our identity, they become the place that we look for value, for worth, for belonging. It is destined to fail. And those two things are, again, the two great idols of humanity. I would say the first one is family, tribe, We see Jesus talk about that, and then the the second one is self. So when we think about the idol of family, Jesus, whenever he says these words, whoever hates his life in this world, he's speaking into a patriarchal society. A society that elevates family above self. Self. A society that elevates doing right by your family. It doesn't matter if you aren't into farming. If your family is a family of farmers, you know what you do? You farm. You don't get to go move away and learn IT and coding and do your own thing. No, you're a farmer. Your grandfather was a farmer, your great-grandfather was a farmer, and your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was a farmer. And this is what you do is you farm. Because if you don't, in this honor-shame society, it is shameful not just for you, but for your family. It has real repercussions. Not just for you, but for your family. It's, again, we can't even really grasp all of, like, what that meant in Jesus' day, but I think that we see this in our world. I think that we know those parents, some of us might struggle to be those parents, that their whole world revolves around their children, I think we might know some of those children that their whole world revolves around pleasing their parents. Anyone familiar with this? Have you ever witnessed the the parents that, again, whole world revolves around their kids, and all of a sudden the kids grow up and are adults, and they move out? and this person's life just starts kind of slowly falling apart because they don't know what else to do without their kid there. Or maybe that kid grows up and starts making decisions that they don't agree with, and it's absolutely debilitating to their faith. Well, if you train a child up in the way they should go... Book of Proverbs, not Promises. Um, Anyways, uh, but... We even see this with, tragically, the parents that maybe lose a child. And it's really hard to think about that because probably most of us in here know someone who's been through that. And it just wrecks everything. If, if we are... Elevating our family to this place where this is where I get value. This is where I get worth. This is where my future lies. This is my retirement plan. (laughs) Hello, dads. (laughs) Although it would be nice. Uh, (laughs) Kidding. We We are looking for something that we can never get from there. We are setting ourselves up for... Failure And maybe you're thinking here, I'm, I'm single. This doesn't really apply to me. Eh, I've heard some single people's conversations around marriage. And <laughs> that can be a big thing that we look for to bring us identity. Especially in our, our culture. And if I could just meet the right person, if, you know... It's like this idea that marriage completes us somehow. We would almost forget that two of the, like, main people in our faith, uh, Jesus and the Apostle Paul, were single. Um, but that's a whole other sermon that we won't get into. So we've got family. And then there's a second thing that we see Jesus uh, talk about, this idol of self. So we have these families that elevate—we f- have these societies that elevate family over self— And then there's these other societies, I don't know if you can imagine one, that elevates self over family, where it's not at all about the family, but it's about self-fulfillment and self-actualization, and it's about, you know what, I'm going to move here because I just feel this calling that I need to be in this geographic location, and if I see my family once a year at the holidays, that's great. Again, I don't know if anybody else can imagine a society like that. A society that's always looking for the next thing to be fulfilled, that's always feeling like, if I could just get this job, if I could just get this promotion, if I could just get to this place, I would, I would be at this point where I would be fulfilled. Can I just tell you that no, no job... No amount of income, no specific career, no dream vacation that you go on, or even dream city that you live in is going to bring you that fulfillment that you're looking for. Because you're going to get there and you're going to realize, oh, this city has the same difficulties That The other one does, and oh, these relationships have at least one of the same people in them that my old ones did, a.k.a. me, and wherever I go, I go, and I have issues, and so a lot of these same relational issues keep popping up, no matter where I go or the friends that I get around or whatever it is, or oh, I make this amount of money, but all of a sudden my... Bills increased to that same amount, and I'm actually feeling more weight and debt and whatever it is, right? Like, I'm just, let me just tell you that it's, it, it's, it's never going to bring that fulfillment. So again, Jesus, the expert mountain guide... Who knows that any allegiance other than himself is a dead end? Says, whoever hates his life in this world will have eternal eternal life, will keep it for eternal life. Are we willing to give up the dream of self fulfillment, of status, of family? of marriage even, in allegiance to Jesus. And say that our allegiance to Jesus will inform how we operate and pursue every one of those things. Again, this is not some like love-hate thing of like, you know, to use the example of money. Jesus is not asking us to take our debit cards out and, and just have this like emotional hatred of I hate you money! Like, That would be weird, okay? Like, it is not this emotional thing. You don't have to go pick a fight with your family this afternoon and be like, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. I have to hate you. Don't do that, okay? You're missing the point. No, this is Jesus saying, am I in the top spot? Am I where your allegiance lies? And if you're like me, You're hearing this, I've been studying this this week, and my continual thought has been, yes, Jesus, you're worth it. Yes, I think this is what I need to do, but I have no idea how to do that. I have no idea how to hate my life in this world. It seems impossible. Anyone else, like as a dad, as a husband, as a mom, wife, as someone who's pursuing a career, you're like, I, I don't even know what that looks like. I've got my identity wrapped up in so many different things that I- I- this is just seems impossible. I think the text gives us a clue. When Jesus says if anyone serves me He must follow me And where I am There will my servant be also I started Really praying about this this week I was reminded Of all the times in scripture where Jesus Talks about that he'll be with us Even to the end of The age Right like Jesus will be with us And I and that's true and great and a comfort, but here what Jesus says is, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Well, where is Jesus headed? He's headed to death. So if I follow Jesus where he is, there, there I'll be. But I, but I think it just starts with the follow me. See, I'm going to be very honest with you. I don't think that we can sit here and logic our way, intellect our way into this place of really, like, hating our life in this world. I don't, I, maybe you're more spiritual than me. Uh, But what you can do is you can start following Jesus in the little moments. You can start asking in everyday moments, what does it look like to follow Jesus in this moment? Because if we start to prioritize Jesus in the little moments, eventually we get to this place where we are where he is. And that burden of seeking fulfillment in identity in all of these places that are not Christ is slowly over time, just as Taylor talked about through training slowly over time we get to this point where we could run the marathon but you can't just jump to the marathon you don't just jump to hating your life in this world no you follow Jesus in every moment and you start seeing that his way is the way to eternal life and the Holy Spirit starts working in your life and changing and softening your heart. And eventually you look up a few years later and you're like, something changed. Somewhere along the way, I don't even know. I can't really like, pinpoint it. I can't really tell you exactly even how it happened. All I can tell you is that something changed. And, and I'm not up here just saying this to somebody just throwing this out there. Three and a half years ago, my wife and I moved back from New York City. We moved up there at the time. We were both in vocational ministry. Uh, I thought that I would be in pastoral ministry for the rest of my life. We took a chance. We moved up to New York. We're working with a church up there, and we're there for a little less than a year. And it sucked. And it was the dream. It was the city that my wife had dreamed about her whole life of living in. I had dreamed about for most of my adult life before we even met about living in. And, and, and let me get this. We love we this city still, but our experience there was hard. We got to a church that was going through just all kinds of, of turmoil. And we moved back. 10 months later and not in ministry don't have a place to live we move in with my in-laws we don't have vehicles when we get back because we sold those to go to New York and my cousin calls me and says man I I can't do much but like hey if you want to come up to my office and help me out you, you worked, I'd worked for him before in insurance. He said, I can pay you like 15 bucks an hour. <laughs> okay. And I'm in this point where I, I didn't know what the future looked like. We were broken. We were, we were at odds with each other. Because of the way that things happened, it, it just, again, I don't have to go into all of it, but I just to tell you, I think you probably grasp it from what I even said there. We're, we're fighting with each other because we don't see things the same. We're trying to figure out what's next and where do we go and what does the future look like? And what I realized in the midst of that, so I'll tell you, a few weeks into that, a guy named Justin Renault sends me a text message. And the text message says, Is this still Tyler Powell's phone number? He <laughs> had lost contact, if you can't tell. And Justin had run into a guy from a church uh, that I was on staff with previously where him and I had connected. And he asked him about me randomly. I said, man, I don't know. I I think they may have just moved back. I I really don't know. And so Justin sends me a text. We go get lunch, I think. Lunch or coffee. Not important. Um, And he says, hey man, I'm doing this thing uh, we're calling gospel coaching now. It's kind of like intentional discipleship. Uh, Would you be interested? Just for a season of life, you know, you would just say if we're going to meet every week or two weeks or whatever and honestly I I was semi-interested I wasn't that interested but I always liked Justin and I was like yeah let's do it I don't have like at this point I'm just bitter I'm angry I'm hurting he says man we're just our our thing is we just want to help people to really identify like identify what what their calling is and to walk into that and I'm like I got nothing there. I don't even know where to start with that conversation. I thought I was going to be a pastor. That's, that ship sailed. Like, I am firmly not a pastor, and at this point my life's a wreck, and I don't think I could lead myself, much less anyone else. So I got nothing there. And in starting with Justin, one of the first things we did was just kind of a life audit. Let's just take account of where things are. And I would challenge you to do the same as you think about prioritizing Jesus above everything is really just taking an actual honest look at your life. And if this means pen and paper for you like it did for me, accounting the amount of hours you're putting towards something, accounting, okay, I'm, I'm man, this takes up a lot of mental real estate here. Why? because I'm finding a lot of identity in this. Man, this whole thing of like losing this job, this pastoral role, and now not having that, that really bothers me. Why? Because that's where a lot of my identity is. Again, a good thing that maybe is in the future, but that's not God. So I would encourage you to, do a life audit, and then I would encourage you to just take a step based on that, whatever that looks like. If that means getting rid of something, if that means adding something, spiritual disciplines like Taylor talked about earlier, or if that means asking for help. You guys have elders here in Weston and in Justin who... Set aside time to do gospel coaching is what they call it But if you've never been through that let me encourage you as someone who again three and a half years later now Can tell you that that season of my life was so formative And that god used Justin renault whenever i'm at a time where i'm like I don't even know what prayer looks like at this moment in my life And so you know what me and justin did we went down to the norton art gallery And we prayed That became a regular thing That we did weekly And we started fasting together I said, Justin, I've never really understood fasting It's always felt a little like This works-based thing of like If I do this, maybe God will give me this And he's like, hey, kind of missing it there Uh, (laughs) We did this together And I would encourage you Take advantage of that If you haven't or maybe you have, and you're like me, I actually texted Justin just this week and said, hey, I, I think I want to do it. Like, we stay in touch, and we're, we're very good friends, but I'm like, I think I want to do another, like, intentional season. Like, let's go back to, like, every other week, get something on the calendar. Because here's the thing. So, I was actually reading this this morning, and I want to share this. Mark Sayers... Um, has this quote on spiritual growth, and he says, to grow, we are going to have to step outside of our comfort zones and break away from the grip of the myth that life is going wrong when we are not feeling good. What Jesus is calling to and calling each of us to in hating our life in this world is not going to feel good at times. It's like the expert mountain guide who says hey you're going to have to leave some of this stuff behind but, but I bought that at REI right before we came and it was a couple hundred bucks and I'd really like to have it he's like it's not going to feel good but you're going to need to leave this here so that we can move quickly so that we can get to life on the other side of this again probably a poor analogy but I hope that you get what I'm saying Let me encourage you with this, and we'll close. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. When Jesus says eternal life, he's not just talking about future like we think of as Westerners. But eternal life is the life that Jesus offers now. It is the abundant life, the abundant way of Christ right now. And so what Jesus is not saying there is like, oh, well, my family, my kids are really the main thing to me. And if I can hate my life in this world, well, then I get to keep it for eternal life. So my kid's salvation depends on me. Like, that's not it. Don't try to do those mental gymnastics and try to like work this back into like focusing on the wrong thing. I, I, th- I think that the greatest Gift that you can give the world is to just become more like Christ. And that's true for each and every one of us. The greatest thing that you can do for your kids is to become more like Christ. The greatest thing you can do for your spouse is to become more like Christ. And that gives opportunity for God's grace to move and to work in beautiful and wonderful ways. And at the end of all of it, I love what Jesus says. He says, if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. The father will honor him. This way of Jesus, again, death to self not prioritizing our own life, but prioritizing the way of Jesus, where does it end? With the Father. We'll honor him. Identity, purpose, meaning, value, worth, all of the things that we're striving for, Jesus tells us it's right here in a way that is unwavering, in a way that is not fleeting like the things of this world, but in a way that is eternally secure. And I don't know if that gives you the encouragement and the hope to say, hey, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't feel good, I'm going to continue to press in because this is, where else are we going to go? This is the way to eternal life. So as we get ready in a a minute to come take communion, Let's each one of us, myself included, pray and ask God what it is, how he would have us respond to his word. God, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. God, we do want to prioritize everything above you. God, in comparison to our love for you, we want to hate even the good things of this world. But God, we cannot do that on our own. God, I want to see my kids come to know you. And I can't make that happen. And that is humbling. God, would you just form me more into the image of your son Jesus so that maybe a glimpse of my life will just help them to see you better, will help the world around me to see you better. God, help it to not be about me. Help my life, help our lives, God not be about our vision of the good life God help us to be a community that stays on mission God would you do what only you can in in our hearts and in our lives and then ultimately God through that in our community that we would be a light on a hill you and it it's in Jesus name that we pray.